I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. We're both going to read for about 15 minutes each and then have a more informal conversation about climbing and literature and everything else. So um, I'm just going to start off with a few poems from, from this collection, um, No Map Could Show Them, which is mainly themed around uh, women mountaineering and women who are mountaineers on the whole. Um, and I'll start with a, a poem that's called Mountain. It's the first poem in the book, although um, ironically perhaps one of the only poems in the book that isn't about climbing in some way, uh, more mountains as a metaphor. Mountain. You are very successful, but you have rocks in your chest. Skin-coloured sandstone wedged where your breast should be. Your stomach is a boulder. To hold you up, your legs grow stony too. You zip your jacket up and nobody notices you're a mountain. You buy coffee, run board meetings where no one says you're made of scree. But above your head, their talk is weather. Your eyes collect new rain. And you know what you are, because like any hillside, you don't sleep. Your feet could hold you here forever, but your sides are crumbling. And when you speak, your words are rockfall. You're scared. Your heart is tumbling from your mouth. I, I've said this many times at reading, so I apologise if you've ever seen me read from, from any collection before. I may have mentioned this, but um, I got very interested in, in the history of women's mountaineering, partly through reading um, that in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they used to say that a climb passed through three phases. So first it was the most difficult route in the Alps, then it was a moderate day out, and finally it was an easy day for a lady. And that was the point when you knew that you, you didn't need to bother with it anymore. So I've tried to write a kind of response to that, I suppose. I found a quote from a, a male climber in the 20s who said of one route, the grepon has disappeared. Of course, there are still some rocks standing there, but as a climb, it no longer exists. Now that it has been done by two women alone, no self-respecting man can undertake it. And I decided to, to write an answer to that, I suppose, this idea of, of climbs disappearing. So this poem's just called An Easy Day for a Lady. When we climb alone on Corde Feminine, we are magicians of the Alps. We make the routes we follow disappear. Turn round to see the swooping absence of the face, the undone glaciers, crevasses closing in on themselves like flowers at night. We're reeling in the sky. The forest curls into a fist. The lake is no more permanent than frost. Where you made ways, we will unmake. Give back the silence at the dawn of things. Beneath your feet, the ground retracts its hand. 
I was also interested to read that sometimes groups of women who were climbing together on their own, um, pairs of women, would get so fed up of being given unsolicited advice by passers-by that they invented an imaginary climbing companion who was called Bob. So that if somebody came past and tried to give them advice, they could say, it's fine, Bob's just up there fixing the roots for us, you don't need to bother us. And I got really interested in this idea of Bob and who he might be and his imaginary status I guess so I wrote a poem for him it's just called Ode to Bob and I have a friend called Bob and every time I read this he thinks it's about him <laughs> Ode to Bob for he never calls to us unkindly from a ledge voice like an avalanche his feet dislodge no flat back stones for when he drinks he leaves the whiskey undiminished in the flask he never steals the morning with a story of a pitch he climbed, one-handed, wearing boxing gloves, and never casts his shadow on the path, dark as a winter coat, nor whistles like a postman from his belay stance. For when he has advice, he will not offer it, and when we have advice, he takes no heed. The rain stitching the valley does not trouble him. The wind can never peel his body from the crag, for I will not have to love him. Watch as he threads a way through limestone, finding the day's vanishing point. There's a sequence in this collection which is addressed to a climber who some of you may, well I hope you remember him, called Alison Hargreaves, uh, who is from Belper in Derbyshire, which I should have explained before is where I grew up and where I learned to rock climb. And I've always been very fascinated by her life, I suppose, but for, or sometimes for reasons I can't quite explain, and by her biography, and, and by the way she, the things that she wrote in her diary. If you read Alison, some of some of the things that Alison Hargreaves wrote in her diary, and the way she wrote about Derbyshire, I've always found that quite compelling, as much as, as her life. So she, she was a very accomplished mountaineer. She was the first woman to climb Everest unsupported, and she died tragically not long after descending from K2 and a lot of people remember her because there's a big media furore surrounding her death because she was a mother of two and obviously nobody particularly talks about George Mallory being a father of three or any of these things, it's, it's, it's quite focused on, on mothers I think so I wrote a sequence of poems that are addressed to her, they're not an attempt to take on her voice, that would be a, a very inappropriate thing to do I think um, but written almost like letters to her I suppose I thought I might read a couple of those, all set in the landscape that she learned to climb in. This poem's called Prayer, and I've been thinking a lot about it recently because there's been so much bad news. And I suppose it's um, it's a plea for days that are not not exciting and brilliant, but not terrible either. Days where nothing goes wrong, and I think there's a lot to be said for those kind of days, especially in landscapes that you love. So this poem's just called Prayer, and it's set in the Hope Valley prayer give us good days days unspectacular but adequate the weather neither calm nor wild your coat zipped nearly to the top a silver thermos cooling in your bag the sky at Bamford reddening as if embarrassed by its own strange reach and day old pipe smoke clouds above the hope cement works crows wheel arcs of guarded flight and when you touch the rock your fingers hold. And the other 
poem that's addressed to Alison Hargreaves that I'll read is set um, in a place in Derbyshire called Black Rocks, which is a really weird place to climb because it's popular with, um, it's quite a difficult place to climb. It's popular with climbers, but also with teenagers drinking cider <laughs> who sit at the top. So when you kind of peer over the edge, there's somebody with a can peering back at you. Um, and there's also a lot of graffiti. There's lots of people who have carved their names into the rocks. So you're sort of climbing on letters as well. And apparently Alison Hargreaves wrote in a diary when she was on her final trip to K2 that she was dreaming about this particular place, that she was dreaming about black rocks in Cromford. So this poem's just called Above Cromford. Your body tight against the cold inside a tent high on K2. You dream about black rocks, squat monoliths tattooed with names. Roots so graffitied that you'd sink your fingers into letters, pull on the initials of the dead. You didn't need to carve your own. Your signature was grip and lift, partnerless dance that left no mark. And as you moved, the sequences spelled out your name. And it was unrepeatable and gone when you looked back. I think I might read a, a running poem next. I, I, am, I do climb, but I'm not a very good climber. My background is more in long-distance running. I've been running since I was a teenager. I love everything about running. I love it as part of my writing process. I write quite a lot in my head when I'm out for a run. Um, I love the freedom of, of running in Derbyshire. But the only thing I don't like about long-distance running is having to listen to other runners talk about their obsessive diets <laughs> and fads that they're, they're, they're kind of onto that particular week and I wrote this piece after talking to another athlete in Sheffield and he was telling me that he was going to start putting butter in his black coffee because apparently monks do this at altitude in Tibet and so obviously it's also a good plan in Hillsborough on a Sunday. Um, so this is the this poem I guess is the diet handbook that I'll never write and it's just called My Diet. My diet comes with a free fork you use it to puncture yourself like a barbecue sausage, so all the wasted breath comes out of you like this. Mine is the Shackleton diet, you eat your boots. The Everest diet where frostbite lightens your extremities. On my diet you can eat, but only with your eyes shut. My diet is like the wheel of a very small bicycle, rotating fast. It's the Cullender diet, you pick out the gaps and eat them. My diet is the South Yorkshire Coalfields diet. It includes nothing but a small apology. On my diet, you can eat your own past very carefully, like nibbling the corner of a photograph. My diet is the diet of worms. You can only eat religious assemblies from the 16th century. My diet is the diet of a dancer who can't dance. My diet is bigger than your diet, and that's what scares me. My diet is self-sustaining. If you like, you may begin to eat yourself slowly, starting from inside. And I think I'll just read a, a couple more poems in, in the book. Maybe one that's, on, that's not sport-related at all, or kind of is, it mentions running, but um, I've always liked the idea of having really erudite epigraphs to some of my poems, maybe something Shakespearean or something, um, yeah, something kind of profound. But unfortunately, my my new collection only contains stuff like this which is an epigraph from the askmen.com guide to why men date difficult women um, which is a website that I discovered somehow I'm not really sure even how I found it um, 
and I found this quote, well, this term that was being used all the time, difficult women, it was sort of being used as if it was an obvious category and everyone would know exactly what that meant. And I found that quite interesting. And so I decided to write a poem about the term and it has a quote from the website which just says, God knows there are difficult women out there Women who are at times shallow, bitchy, selfish, dishonest, and of course crazy. And I kind of particularly like the of course as an afterword. So, yeah, I guess this poem's about that term, and it's just called Difficult. Difficult women don't care what time it is. They're crowding the bus stop with their difficult bodies, refusing to budge for the light. Or in the parks, dragging their difficulty behind them like a fat dog. Some of them are running, cycling, or worse, driving cars. If a difficult woman hits you at 30 miles per hour, you have a 50% chance of survival. At home, difficult women are more like walls than windows, but if you lean on one, you fall straight through, and sometimes at night they show your face. Difficult women don't know they're born. Difficult women don't know the meaning of the word. There could be one folded into your newspaper, holding her breasts like oranges. There might be one carrying your coffee or moving to your road. In London, it's said you're never more than six feet from a difficult woman. <laughs> if you or a colleague had a difficult woman in the last six months, if so, you may be entitled to compensation. <laughs> Do you have difficulty with our questions? Are you afraid you may be difficult yourself? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll maybe just um, just read um, a couple more, a running poem and a climbing poem to finish. Um, the running poem is about a man from Derbyshire who's been a bit neglected, I think. Everybody remembers the, the famous Roger Bannister four-minute mile and perhaps some of the other athletes who were in that race like um, Chataway and Brasher, but not as many people know that um, the man who finished third in that classic race was a miner from Tibshelf in Derbyshire called Tom Hullett. He was the only athlete in the race who wasn't a student and um, afterwards he, he kind of returned to obscurity, I guess. He went back to Derbyshire. I think he finished up working in pest control in Sheffield. But there's been a bit more interest in his story recently. I think they've named a bit of... There's a stretch of track in Tibshelf named after him. It's called Tom Hullett's Mile. But, yeah, I wanted to write something for, for him. He died in 1990. So this is a poem about, I guess, about his running career. It's just called Tom Hullett's Mile. When the tape was broken and the clock froze banister and brasier, crowned with sweat and round applause, the man who really finished third kept running, out of Iffley Road and Oxford, north to Tibshelf, overground at first, then down through the pit shafts and tunnels he'd worked, earth his only audience. He ran right out of 1954, through all the jobs he ever had, the Derbyshire he knew. He ran through centuries of rain and bad ideas, through lifetimes of good luck. Sometimes his shadow lagged behind. He ran like weather, he ran like time. And they call it a mile, but it lasts forever. You can try to catch him, but there is no line. And I'll maybe finish with a climbing poem as well. It's, yeah, I'll finish with a, with a piece that I wrote after reading an article uh, by a woman called Jemima Diki Sherpa. She was writing in the aftermath of the dispute between some 
shapers and, and expeditions on Everest. I think it was in 2013 or 14. There's a fantastic film called Sherpa, a documentary that was made about that season and that year and the, the deaths that happened that year and some of the conflicts that I think is fantastic. But yeah, I, I wrote it after reading this article where Jemima was saying that the first thing she got asked when she was a student in Australia and she went over to Australia and the first thing that people asked her when they found out that she was from Nepal and her surname was Sherpa was how much can you lift? So this poem's just called How Much Can You Carry? I can carry a man as much air as you like caught and held in a can. I gather each morning in my arms and lug the day up high. I've shouldered your hopes, your oldest fears. The path I cleared is a diagram of need. You ask me to lift your country as if it's light. You've packed your history, rivers and houses tight. Sometimes I stand on the summit, pretend to raise the daylight moon on my open hand. I've carried the lot. Now what should I do with it? When do I stop? And I'll stop there, I think. Hello. I'm going to pick up on a thread, a couple of threads of that. The first thread I'm going to pick up on is a story that I went to Iceland recently and um, I was in Reykjavik and I could see the mountains across the bay and I thought, I'm going to walk there. It doesn't look far. It was. <laughs> so I went to um, a place called um, Ulfafell, which is not how it's pronounced, as I discovered any attempt to speak Icelandic in Iceland is met with polite curiosity as to what you meant. And I went and it was fell, you know, fell is a fell is a Viking word, fell is a Nordic word. And it did look like a fell in the Lake District. And I climbed to the top of it. And when I got there, there were two very miserable girls with two humping whippets eating chips out of a bag. <laughs> and it had taken me quite a long time to get there. Um, and I thought, it is just like the Lake District. And the other thread, I'm going to read something from Climbing Days I've not read before, but it's one of my favourite bits. And Helen was talking about Alison Hargreaves and Dorothy Pilly, Dorothea, was always interested in what was going on in the climbing world, no matter what age she was. And when she was, you know, when she was in her 80s, a chap came along to the book launch in um, Holland Park, Dr. Charles Clark came along and he was on Everest with um, Joe Tasker and Chris Boardman. Pete Boardman, <laughs> thank you. Joe Tasker and Pete Boardman. Joe Tasker and Pete Boardman are still on Everest and Dr. Charles Clark returned with Chris Bonington and the first thing they had to do once they got home was write the book because that's what they'd agreed to do. They'd had the sponsorship and part of the sponsorship was writing the book so they got home and they wrote a book about the climb. And he came along and I immediately went into the default and I said, Everest? the north, you know, the, the second step. And I wanted to ask him about those two. And he immediately gently cut me off and said, your relatives, Ivor and Dorothea, were climbing aristocracy. I had the great fortune to know them and they were extraordinary people. And then because you're at a book launch and you can't talk to anyone, everyone, anyone very long, I introduced him to my dad. And I think that's the nicest thing I could have done for my dad. However, what Charles Clark thought about that, I never discovered. But um, there's a story in here about Dorothy talking about that particular Everest trip. And I'm going to do the reading now. But if you imagine that it the punctuated throughout by this noise of Dorothy in her house in Cambridge, in her 80s, arranging cutlery 
and cups and various things explaining to her nephew Anthony about what happened on Everest. And she was absolutely there and she absolutely knew what had happened on Everest and she could picture it and she had her own opinions. And it picks up on the thread of women climbing and the responsibility, not just of women, but people with families climbing. Did you see that Chris Bonington's got up Everest? Dorothea asked Anthony. It's 1985, back in the sitting room of Wentworth House in Cambridge. Anthony says that he did. 50. He did it by the ordinary route, apparently. He had awfully bad luck. And then the last time, the girl who's been so kind, who I like so much, lost her husband, Hilary. She's a wonderful girl, I think. Beautiful and able. She's teaching English in Switzerland, and she helps run the mountaineering school there. And she won a first-class skiing prize last year. She was a wonderful hostess to me. I mean, I was a sort of PG, paying guest. But she motored me everywhere I wanted to go. But the last expedition, three years ago now, poor Hilary, her husband, Peter, and what's the other fellow's name? Tasker. They were both superb and careful climbers, and they disappeared. The party thought they disappeared behind the ridge there. Sounds of Dorothy placing objects on the table to illustrate what she's saying. The party thought that from below they'd see them reappear, and they never reappeared in the gap there, you see? They disappeared in this section, and nobody knows. Chris and the young doctor, who I know, they went round the mountain to see if there was any trace of their ice axes or bodies, but there weren't. And Hilary insists, and Peter's mother believes, that they died on the ridge there in their sleeping bags. But I think the majority of people imagine they were swept away by an avalanche. The scale of the avalanches. All the modern mountaineers say they've learnt so much about avalanches. But they're so gigantic, really. Fifty houses in size coming down, you know. They're beyond any kind of control. You've seen avalanches, presumably, Anthony asks. Oh, you see them all the time in the Himalayas. You could see them a lot if the conditions are such. You don't go out. But one of the nicest young Swiss friends I've ever had 40 years ago. He had only two weeks holiday, you see. He was killed at about 24. He shouldn't have gone, and he knew he shouldn't have gone. But you do take risks on occasion. As I get older, I think the risk is too great. I can't imagine how Chris Bonington, with a wife, I think, and a couple of children, I think it's rather wicked if you've got a family. I think you should be a bachelor. Or just the two of you, that's all right, really. Yes, says Anthony, not with children. Listening to the tape again, now home from Switzerland, I picture the North Ridge of Everest mapped out with cutlery and mugs and think of Dorothea walking with her sticks around a roller and Les very interested in the goings-on at the school, taking great pleasure at being in the mix of climbers and climbing talk. An elder a link across generations, a bright-eyed old lady who's travelled and lived. She was nine when Orville Wright flew the first powered aeroplane 20 feet above a beach in North Carolina, 30 when Ivor's college friend George Mallory disappeared on the second step of Everest, 59 when Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay succeeded in climbing it, 75 when man set foot on the moon. She'd lived through two world wars, outlived Ivor, and all her siblings, and nearly all her climbing friends and peers. Sat there with Anthony, she lays out the story of another fellow gone, disappeared, in the manner of one acquainted, if not reconciled to such things. Age or accident, 
had taken them all. Of course, it's wicked waste when young people die. But she understands both sides, I sense. She knows what it is to press into the unknown. You do take risks on occasion. She'd never have told them not to go. But the loss is no less for that. Climbing days ends with an account of an accident. Leaving for Geneva, Iva and Dorothea meet four experienced climbers, instantly recognisable for the even, tranquil, rhythmic union with which they were walking together up the moraine. A party elevated above the panting, spasmodic pedestrians moiling up the path, notes Dorothea. These were kindred. These were climbers. They stopped to talk with them. A strong, eager, responsible party, full of infectious joy at the day ahead. And they almost persuade the pair, Dorothea and Iva, to extend their holiday by a day and join them. But they reluctantly decide against it and continue on down. Next morning from Geneva, Mont Blanc was gleaming under a clear sky, and we thought often and enviously of them as we strolled in its hot streets. The evening papers came out with news of an accident. Coming down, at the point when all the difficulties were over, at the well-known crossing point at the Pierre Lachelle, an avalanche of stones had swept across the path, and the leader with whom we had talked most had been struck and instantly killed. If we had gone with them, we may have been ten minutes later, and no accident would have happened. What a toss-penny game at moments mountaineering seemed. Holding the damp printed news sheet in the Rue de Mont Blanc, it was impossible not to feel there but for the grace of God. Twenty-five pages earlier, Joseph Shores is shouting, Je shook. He was there. The puzzle of the unclimbed North Ridge was cracked, the triumph of their climbing lives. Dorothea's account relates how fatigue and failing light made the summit stay brief and the descent fast and faltering, but the Dom Blanche triumph was to furnish them with wings. Their distinction was golden and survived them all. Now, powerless and clammy in baking Geneva, they read of a death of a man in a hail of stones, a friend by virtue of passion and chance, and they try to imagine it differently. Here is mountaineering in microcosm. The unparalleled experiences and acclaim, and the crushingly blunt cost in a few paragraphs. Everyone climbs at the mercy of the mountains. I recall and picture Mallory and Irvin as Noel O'Dell saw them and described them the last time they were seen alive, as two specks moving up a snow crest, two tiny flies on a whitewashed wall before clouds cloaked them and they disappeared. I'd like to read another bit as well. This is far more pedestrian and prosaic in a way. But when you write about people you never knew, you need to get to know them in some way. You need to meet them. And one of the reasons I climbed for this book, having never really climbed before, was to meet Ivor and Dorothea in their element, in their nature, in the landscape they, hold most, they held most kindred and dear. And so I went climbing in mountains. Sometimes the mountains were severe and serrat and fierce. And sometimes, as when I climbed with Dorothy's nephew, my great-great, second cousin, sorry, Anthony, in Spain, we went up Montserrat, which has a um, flight of stairs pretty much all the way to the top. And you benefit from um, going up on funicular railways and cable cars. I've said Spain. It's not Spain, they tell you. It's uh, Catalonia. I went climbing in Catalonia. 
The concrete underfoot had ceded to rock and earth. The middle of the mountain was lush and wooded, and we walked in parched runnels overhung with trees in landscape reminiscent of Dorset's Holloways, albeit overlooked by multi-story figures. The pregnant woman, the mm. mummy, l'elephant, which actually does look like a monstrous oolite elephant. Gorse-flowered yellow, lime trees, oaks, white pines and maple grew with yew, olive, hazelnut, holly and box. The smells were rich, thick, sweet and sappy as we passed beneath their canopy, very grateful for the shade they gave. In the quiet, the clicking of Antony's hiking sticks became hypnotic, a metronome to birdsong and the distant tolling of the monastery bells. We didn't speak much, but there was camaraderie in our synchronised step and the mirrored way we'd both sit for a drink without needing to discuss it. Since crashing his motorbike and smashing his left knee, long walks had been a struggle, Antony explained, not ascending as a rule, but rather descending, something to do with the way the cartilage flexed, or more accurately, failed to flex in his right knee. But he was feeling all right in the moment, since the trail had been of a relatively consistent grade. He was dressed again in a bright t-shirt, tangerine this time. Looking at him there, I reflected that it was an ageless attire. T-shirt, light trousers, thickish, stock, thickish socks, robust boots. Perhaps he'd been similarly dressed when he moved out here 30 years ago, or even before, working in Barclay Towers, which is a place that he um, recorded music in Edinburgh when he and Dorothy were close. I've heard of roots up mountains described as stairways before, but generally the term is used to allude to an obvious path or pitch, like a ladder-like set of holds. Montserrat's case is more literal. The San Jerome summit is reached by a long grey flight of concrete steps. There are handrails too, in places. The sense is of an accessibility scheme which has got out of hand. The highest point features an observation platform with a 360-degree map with the bearings and distances to cities and mountains near and far. Below us, Montserrat drops sheer for several thousand feet to the vineyards, forests and pastures of the Catalan Central Depression, spreading green towards Andorra and the distant Pyrenees. Somewhere, some 200 miles to the northwest on the French side of that range was Gavarin and the Hotel de Voyer, where IAR and Dorothy first met the grand old man, Francois Bernard Sal, who guided them safely through the events related in the Climbing Days chapter into Spain and back again, 1923. Further west stood Pic de Midi d'Orso, which the pair returned to climb the following year, and in whose shadow Ivor took one of my favourite photographs of Dorothy in the daffodil fields under the Pic de Medici. Also, not pronouncing this right, I know, I know, you can tell me afterwards, at evening. Face in shadow, body half hidden behind rucksack, she sits looking back at Ivor. A long-handled axe leans in the foreground. But for the axe, it could be a contemporary shot. Dorothy in a headscarf and a thick jacket, fir trees rising behind her. First tightly packed in swathes, then thinning, lightning band on band until they peter out completely and the snow-defined ridges and grey twin prongs of the mountain stand alone in the grainy sky. The light is crisp but nebulous. Were it not for the caption, it would be hard to know what time of day the picture was taken or whether the pair were setting out or returning from the crescent pinnacles which dominate the scene. But the day is clearly extremely cold. 
so cold that a chill stillness seems to escape the frame and the trees seem to steam in the frozen air. Sat in the centre, Dorothy holds our, our gaze, Ivor's gaze. She's 29, her physical peak, and behind her looms peak de Midi Lorceau, freshly scaled that day like a horned prize on the back wall of the scene. But now the night is coming on and the moon is up and they're en route back to the inn at dusk, about to plunge into a forest by lantern light. But they stop, just for a moment, and Ivor takes a photograph. A frozen snap in time. And now we're going to talk to each other, <laughs> whether you like it or not. And I'm going to start, and I'm going to ask something that kind of relates to both of our readings in a way. It's about relating to, it, relating to the lives of others, putting yourself in their place and writing about what they did, how they climbed, who they were. And it was interesting you said you didn't try and write in Alison Hargreaves' voice. Mm but you are writing about, about her. Yeah. And I wonder if you could say something of kind of how, what was the first experience? How did you get to know about Alison Hargreaves? Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question about how, how, how you write about other people's experiences because in a weird kind of way, I think that's what started me writing climbing poems actually was partly reading Alison Hargreaves um, the biography about her life Regions of the Heart which is a great book and just really for some strange reason feeling like you could identify with somebody who you'd never met and didn't know and, and, and it seems a bit crazy to, to, to feel that that way in, in some sense and what gives you the, the right to identify with someone you've never met but there was something about kind of yeah, more about how she lived her life or how she thought of herself that that was really drawn to, I think, in, in that particular book. Um, and also, I started noticing as I read that and, and as I thought about her life that I'd never written about running or climbing before, even though they're really, really big parts of my life and, and kind of a, a lot of what I do, I, I've really struggled to put my own experiences into words and I sort of found it easier to to write poems about other people climbing. or So, for example, in the poems about Alison Hargreaves, a lot of the time I was thinking about places where I climb nearly every weekend, but I couldn't write about myself climbing there. I found it easier to imagine her in the same landscape and imagine it through her. It was almost a, a, a way of stepping back from your own mm. experience, I suppose, and, and, and kind of... So she, yeah. she, in a way, was a sort of on-ramp to your own life, in a way. She was a prism through which to see it anew? Yeah, maybe. Or like, as I say, I saw it more as letter writing. It was like writing to her. I don't know, I guess your experience would be different as kind of recreating climbs in a sense that, that somebody else had done. Or did you see it in that way or was it not as conscious as that? I don't know. I mean, I just knew I had to go to their, their world. But equally, their world, it was Dorothy and Ivor because they came as a pair. And so their world was at once you know, North Wales, but also Magdalen College, Cambridge, which are quite different places. But they were both hugely important. And with the, I found there was, in some way, there was a, they related to each other because during the First World War, Ivor would climb, he would build her on the roofs of Cambridge University. And Dorothy had a history of building as well. So the kind of the urbex pursuits, the climbing on buildings were something that linked them. But I think it's, imp I felt it was so important to go to these places and witness them. And even if you didn't actually get on with them terribly well, I mean, I, I kept coming up against 
Cambridge University as a, you know, terribly helpful on paper and in person, depending on the person, you know, and, and very eager to help as long as they felt they could. But if they felt they couldn't, you're pretty much forbidden to carry on that sort of thing. So there was no question I was getting on roofs, which I took as... If the book had gone along any longer, I would have seen that as a personal challenge and I would have got on some roofs. But as it went, I just pushed it as far as I could go. And again, you know, there's a part with the Cambridge chapter where I imagined myself into Ivor because Ivor was climbing. He was doing these extraordinary ascents at night in 1915 when Cambridge was blacked out in expectation of Zeppelin raids. And I think it's quite easy when people have done extraordinary things. It's almost easier to imagine yourself in their place because there's such a lot to work with. They did such extraordinary things. And the other thing um, with Alison Hargreaves and her extraordinary life as well is that um, actually I think, and this might sound like an odd thing to say, but when I was reading particularly about her and and her uh, biography, it made me think of what it means to me to be a writer more than a climber, actually. The way that she... The way that that climbing gave her purpose and gave her a sense of self-expression that she she couldn't access in any other way, really, made me think of how I've always felt about writing and how I think about poetry as kind of this this chance to be yourself and to express yourself in a way that you can't in ordinary life. And that's a theme that comes up a lot in in writing about Alison Hargreaves and in in the things she says about herself, just just feeling at home in mountains and feeling like um, when she was elsewhere, she she was half a person or she couldn't really mm. be happy. And I know that's that, that sense of having that one thing or that drive, that's how I've always felt about poetry. So actually I think the, the connection for me was in a funny way in back through, because I've never done a sense of the kind that she did, even though I can climb it in Derbyshire in the same places, but I, I felt like I knew what, what it meant to, to have that, passion and that kind of that thing that that makes you who you are I suppose so it made me think about being a writer more than a climber maybe and was that the sort of feeling that fired you to put these this collection of female mountaineers together that idea of kind of like purpose and and writing about those things I mean how did the collection come together Um, I think with a lot of collections I always imagine that poetry is a bit different from from the way you might embark upon writing another book be interested here if it is different or if it's not but but for me it's sort of you you realize that you're you only realize that you're obsessed with certain things or that you're writing about things after you've written you start to see the themes in your work and you realize that your kind of interests are cohering around certain things so for instance i i realized i've been writing all these poems about female mountaineers and i was also interested in writing about other people who'd maybe been overlooked in some way. Um, I was writing a lot about a woman from Hull called Lillian Belocker who campaigned to change trawler safety legislation after the triple trawler disaster in the 60s. And all these kind of themes that perhaps you don't realise until you sit down with them and you go, oh, I've been preoccupied <laughs> with this for the past few years. So it kind of, it's a bit retrospective, I think. Which I guess is a very different undertaking to something like Climbing Days, maybe. I don't know, I completely, I completely get what you mean with the becoming obsessed or becoming, I mean, preoccupied with something. Um, For the Beechwood book, I spoke to Stuart Lee and he said, you know, Richard Herring was really, really important in his early stand-up comedy because Richard Herring would say, you know that thing you do for fun, you know that thing that you do all the time for you, that's probably what you should be doing because you spend far much time on obsessing about whatever it is than the actual thing you're meant to doing. So I would would try and use this because you're not getting any of this time back. And I think... 
I became quite, I don't know, preoccupied is the word, I think. But then, you know, there's a quote about Ivor where Ivor would write books at great speed in an effort to understand what the book wanted to be. And I can completely understand that in a way. You need momentum, you need trajectory. And once you're rolling, it's far easier. I mean, writing as a whole, I don't like writing. I should say that, I feel like I should put my hand up. I really hate writing. I love having written. It's the best feeling in the world. I love editing my own writing, but the creation of raw material is horrend a horrendous experience. Walter's at the back, if you want to ask him about, you know, the editing's a horrendous experience as well. But I think once you get some sort of momentum, it's easier. And you were saying when you get the idea. And, and reading as well. I, I enjoy reading and researching more than writing. And the best bit about writing some of the poems about um, women in mountaineering was reading people's journals or reading accounts of things that people have done. And I think I was saying to you before that um, one of the books that I spent the most time with when I was um, trying to think about the history of women's mountaineering was... was Dorothy Pilly's Climbing Days. I loved it. I thought it was absolutely beautiful and beauf beautifully written. Um, and the other book was, was Nan Shepherd, The Living Mountain. Those kind of my companion books. And yet neither of them ended up being referenced in any of the poems in the collection. And that was partly because I'd keep, I'd keep reading them and marvelling at them and writing down these precise phrases like um, you know the way that, that, that Dorothy would describe a climb or the feeling at the top of a climb or a really witty detail or, or some of the poetic descriptions in Nan Shepherd. I'd write these single lines down, I'd go back to them thinking I must be able to riff on that, I must be able to do something with that and at the end of the, of the day it always seemed that the line or the sentence from the prose was better than anything I was going to be able to write as a, as a poem, I couldn't really add to it mm. so a lot of those um, the kind of guiding influences I guess in my reading that, that, that just couldn't be made into a poem because it had all been said already which doesn't mean that the people I wrote about weren't good writers or that they weren't just that there are some phrases that are too complete to kind of improve on I guess I think there's an analogy to be drawn with the actual you know when you are climbing someone else's route when you are going in their footsteps I mean climbing is perhaps unique because you actually you have a line in your book or you have a line in your mind when you look at a face and that line is their route and when you are on the rock, you are faced with the same problem and you have to solve the problem. You know, you can try and reinvent the wheel, but often what you're doing is following exactly in their footsteps, in their handholds. I think when you write about people who are great writers as well, you're faced with the same problem of trying to reinvent the wheel. Because often, especially if they're writing about something they knew so well, they've done it. You know, they've done it well. It's all there and it's there with economy and it's there with great insight and clarity. And then you think well, that's been done, so I should really go over here and look at whatever this is over here. That's my, probably my favourite thing about um, living and climbing in the Peak District is if you, you take somewhere like Stanage Edge, which is where I do a lot of my climbing, I, I, I used to spend a lot of time going up to Stanage at night time when all the climbers had gone, and you'd stand under, underneath it and you'd sort of think, it's kind of like a theatre, that's the best analogy I could come up with, you thought of all the things that happened on, this, mm. uh, on these routes, this, this kind of quite... You know, not that impressive looking edge if you, if you go to, if you, it's not that high, but it's the things that it's seen and the, the classic routes and the, the dramas that have happened somewhere like Stanage are all contained within it. But when you stand under it and, and it's empty at night time, it's almost like an empty stage or a set where nothing's happening. There's this sense of drama that, that isn't yet there. So I, I always find that a really compelling idea that, that climbs a kind of drama that's waiting to happen. Yeah. And that sometimes you're, 
and you can read people's accounts of them. You can you can read how they've written about the route or even how they've named it. My my favourite kind of poetic inspiration, I guess, is reading um, climbing guidebooks in Derbyshire and looking at things that people have called the routes, like mm. Tequila Mockingbird and stuff like that. So all these names that are kind of poetic in themselves. But yeah, there's a drama to it that you almost can't. Yeah, you can't access unless unless you're there. Yeah. I, I think that's something I found when I was climbing. You have these incredibly severe amphitheatres. You know, I mean, um, I mean the Cairngorms. I was climbing in Corrinachtecta, which is known for being this place. It's it's an hour's walk from a ski centre. People think that the proximity to a car park makes it safer than somewhere else, and it's absolutely not. You go there to earn your you know earn your stripes in winter mountaineering and every year people die people come off it and it's because you know it's terrifying it's because it's really severe and also it's because it doesn't care it's only animated the drama of the place comes in part from the ego of the climber you animate it by being there you project onto this thing that is essentially a really serrat hard feature of landscape which is a problem only when you're there when you're not there it's just there it neither knows nor cares it's fine it doesn't need you and people go there and they think well this will be fun and they have a go and they're not going to bounce it's not going to help you in any way shape or form i think that comes as a real shock to some people because they've been in climbing centers where actually there is a solution and it's quite kind because somebody has put up the roots for you. So you know it's possible. And then you look at these things and depending on how the winter's been, it may not be possible. And if you're you, and that's the other terrible thing, if you're you, it may not be possible. And, you know, people are used to thing, help. You don't get any help. <laughs> and I, I guess all the things we're talking like amphitheatre is a really good description, I think, for climbs of mountains but, or, or stage sets or whatever. But the, yeah, as you say, there are also things that you're projecting onto the landscape. Mm. Um, there's a quote that I ended up using in this collection that just says, um, it's from Reinhold Messner, and he says, mountains are neither fair or unfair, they are just dangerous. Yeah. And that's quite a good way to look at it. But um, yeah, I'm aware that I'm probably waffling on about climbing and Stanage and mountains and maybe. We should ask if anyone has any take questions. questions. Um. I read uh, some of your book and uh, not only enjoyed the poetry, but enjoyed it because I know some of the places and have tried to do some of the things. And it's how, when it's all a bit techie, you get it over to a wider public. So something spoke very directly to me because I've fallen off Black Rocks and Crawford. Uh, but but uh, to convey that to a wider audience is really difficult, I think. How do you do it? Um, maybe, yeah, maybe you don't. Maybe you just try. But um, I don't know. I always think this is the, the one time where it helps for me to not be a very good climber because it means that... that, 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 that the experiences that I've had in those places are probably um, a bit more. If, if I was a, a if I was a climber who was climbing E7 or E8 or something, that the number of people who could do that and who could have that experience would be really limited. Whereas the number of people who've fallen off Stanage, like I have repeatedly, is probably a bit wider. So I think there's something in that kind of more general experience that's helpful. But um, I suppose what you're always doing as well is. Um, 
I found a lot of the time when I thought I was writing about climbing, I was at, like the first poem, I was actually writing about other things. So I, I was thinking about those landscapes and things we've just been talking about, but I was actually trying to find a maybe metaphors too strong, but a, a correlate maybe for anxiety or for, for the experience of anxiety. And I was thinking, oh, it's like, um, it's kind of like stones for me, or it's like mountains, or it's like that kind of landscape. So it kind of goes both ways. You're, you're trying to use mountaineering or climbing as a metaphor for something, but then other things perhaps become a, a metaphor for climbing as well, which perhaps other people can identify with whether they've climbed or whether they haven't. I'm interested in Rob, um, and um, this, I've once read a wonderful passage about climbers who are in a very difficult, maybe the weather has turned or something, they feel the presence of a third person guiding them down, and when they turn and get to the base camp, they turn and he's not there. Have you ever had, either of you ever had, or, or, or has that come up in the literature, any, any of you, the idea of this third guide? Yes, there's a, there's a book about it, isn't there? I think called The Third Man by Graham Greene. It's not. Yes, and I've met people who've had that experience, who've had that experience of some sort of guardian angel or some sort of presence. My dad had it once when he was on a very long expedition in Spitsbergen, in Svalbard. And it's apparently fairly uncanny, but... The, the thing that people say time and again is it's very, very comforting. It's not scary. Perhaps it gets you at a time when you're absolutely bereft. You're beyond it in terms of energy. And you're absolutely in the moment because you've got nowhere else to be. And you're on your route, usually back. And this figure appears. And generally he appears out of reach. It's always out of reach. It's always too far to hail him or her and they're always there and they're there and they're very, very, very comforting. And the fact that people live to tell the story means that it's generally a sort of beneficent thing. And my dad has some experience where I think just once it happened to him and it wasn't clear. It was just a feeling. He said far more than actually a physical presence, it was a feeling. But yes, there's a history of this. And, you know, it goes, it's quite a gothic thing. And, you know, there are references to this in, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know, at the end when people go off. And, you know, it's, it's a very sort of severe but comforting guardian angel thing. It, in, it goes across sports as well, I think. In the, the, the book about it, the third man factor, there's lots of reports of people in scuba divers, um, yeah, all kinds of athletes, also people in being told where to find somebody. You know, their friend goes missing in the hills and they, they, they get sent, they're going to look for them and they get a sense that someone else is telling them where to go. I think it's really fascinating because... Um, I think in that book um, they talk a bit about how it applies to other life or death scenarios as well. But um, I've never had that experience, but I have seen a Brocken spectre in the hills, which is an uncanny thing that's a bit like uh, what you'd imagine that, that out of what you're describing, Dan, the out of reach presence m might be. It's, um, it's, it's, well, it's just physics really, but um, it looks as if you're being followed by somebody else. It's this kind of uh, shadow with a rainbow kind of halo around it in mist and it's amazing and it takes you ages to realise that it's actually you and it's a, a projected version of you, you start moving your arms and it, it moves um, and I saw one with my dad a few years ago having written a poem about my dad never having seen a Brock Inspector and then we saw one together in Derbyshire um, 
on Boxing Day and it was amazing, yeah. And very comforting, but yeah, kind of a different thing to the third man factor, I guess. Mm. Um, I was just curious for either of you whether you um, had any thoughts about why... I don't, it's, it seems I'm, I really love mountaineering literature, and it just seems to me like mountaineering sort of inspires good literature more than other sports would do. Um, I mean, it's the only form of sport literature that I'm particularly interested in personally. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that, or if it was just my impression, or if if there's any yeah any thoughts. I don't know. I feel like I should say that it also inspires some bad literature as well, yeah. some of which has been written by me. I'm sure, but attempts to write about it because it can be very hard to put those those intense experiences into words. Those things that that matter so much to you. You know, you, uh, I always think about a climb in the Peak District that. Um, you know, every part of the climb is ingrained in your memory. It might only take about 20 minutes, but it can feel like a month or something. And every every detail, if I do a route that I've done before and I've had a bit of an epic on it or something, I'll remember absolutely everything about it. So those things are, are really heightened for you in, in the way that observations might be when you're writing a poem. But they might not be that interesting to somebody else. <laughs> I think there's always a kind of... So so the people who managed to write about it, well, I think it's, it's really remarkable, actually. I think... Can be quite difficult to 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 write well about the real experience of, of climbing. Um, but yeah, in terms of what sets it apart from other sports, I don't know. Maybe you have. I don't know. Stuff. I mean, there are a number of things in fa- in the sort of mountaineer literature fa- in their favour. I mean, the mountains are extraordinary places. You know, you've got if you're writing, if Mo Farah is writing his autobiography, it's going to be mainly about some ovals of asphalt in various parts of the world. Whereas if you're climbing, you know, so he, he would have to bring more to that. Whereas if you're climbing, you're in these amazing landscapes and places. Also, possibly the nature of a climb, it's a logical problem. It's quite spare. You can't carry a lot of weight. And maybe that flows over into writing about it. I mean, one of my favorite writers about climbing is Joe Brown, who writes very much like he climbs. It's very spare. It's very to the point you know, you're going somewhere. And I think there is a kind of propulsive element to a lot of great mountaineering literature. Having said that, you know, as has already been mentioned, someone like Nan Shepherd, where it isn't about the summit, it's about being with a landscape, where the landscape itself is, you know, not so much the driving force, but it just is there, it's immovable, it's this wilderness. And actually some sort of connection or some sort of, I don't know, some sort of relationship with a landscape and I think if you're a climber or if you're able to go to places within a landscape that the more pedestrian people cannot you will inevitably get insights that other people don't I mean writing about landscape I now don't feel that I need to take a vertiginous route into it to get the most out of it but I think if you do that you will inevitably get a different perspective I've always thought as well there's a natural um, affinity between um, a, a poem and a single pitch rock climb in that they're both kind of sets of instructions for the body or for the voice in some way. You can't paraphrase them. If you could paraphrase them, you wouldn't have written the poem. Or you, wouldn't, you, you kind of have to do them or they have to be experienced. And I always think that's quite an interesting link. Um, but now that you've said this, I've kind of seen it as a challenge. I'm thinking that my next collection should be about darts or pool or something that's not been written about. Maybe boxing. Yeah, actually, I used to do that, so maybe, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, oh, there's another sport that has got good literature about it, boxing, actually. Yeah. 
Helen, I see that you spent a week wearing a crinoline. Could you tell us a bit about that? Okay. Yeah, a few years ago, I think it was in 2013, I went to the Swiss Alps um, with a replica crinoline dress. It was to repeat some of the journey um, that was done by a woman from Yorkshire called Jemima Morell, who was on one of the first Thomas Cook guided guided trips um, around the Alps and they they walked huge distances in a day it was an amazing trek and they were looking for somebody to kind of repeat part of her journey and write about it but I was blogging instead of writing she wrote an amazing diary while she was there um again which is too good to 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 write about in poems really because it's full of these really quite snide often observations and all these kind of things um, about her trip, especially about the food. She was very scathing about the food across Switzerland and about other people on her trip. And it's, it's really arch and really beautifully written. Um, but yeah, I was asked to to repeat some of that walk in a replica crinoline and blog about it instead, as if Miss Jemima had learnt how to use the internet. And she, So I kind of tried to adopt her voice a little bit and write about it. But I, I was full of admiration because the dress I was wearing, which was a replica, was kind of too... It was too big to even really fit through doorways or sit on chairs or, or do things like that, never mind walking 20-odd miles in a day. I thought it was quite, yeah, quite amazing. Hello, I was, I was wondering if that dress might have stopped her falling down crevasses as well, if it's, if it's that wise. But um, this is a question about uh, comedy, really, because you, you're both very funny writers, and actually mountaineering literature can sometimes take itself rather too seriously, I think. And But, but comedy's, a, I guess, a risk when you're writing about mountaineering as well, because if, it, if it's too funny, then the game is not worth the candle and the whole thing descends into farce, and you're taking these terrible risks when risks are being taken... For, for an absurdity. So I guess it's a question about levity and gravity, and it's about how far you can be a funny writer about mountains while still taking it seriously, which I think you both do very well, but I, I wondered how far you've theorised that, as it were. The most moving piece of television I've ever seen, this may say more about me, was on the Fast Show, when the man who was always very, very drunk was talking and he was very, very drunk. And then suddenly you realized that he was talking about the great lost love of his life, who he never told that he was in love with because he was very, very drunk. And then suddenly you look in his eyes and you realize that actually it's not funny at all, it's great acting. And that he's completely pulled the rug. And that maybe the whole of the fast show for several episodes over about a decade has been leading up to this point where you could con or trick a whole audience into breaking their hearts when they were completely unexpected. It was completely unexpected. I think in a way, levity is a way of heightening an emotional response when you realise what, what's actually going on, where something's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. And I think if you can write about that because actually life is incredibly funny and life is incredibly weird and mountaineering is essentially mad. And my dad went climbing once in Lesotho and people were following him up the pitch from the path at the side pointing into the path as if he was somehow terribly myopic and, you know, had lost his mind. And you just had these children following him up at quite a severe pitch just going, hello, <laughs> it's just here. I think... Having, having climbed, having almost, you know, killed not only myself, but my guide, which happens very quickly at the end of the book and is treated very, very quickly because actually there's nothing more boring and nothing more shameful about almost killing yourself and then almost someone else. 
it's passed over very quickly. It's funny in retrospect. It's very funny in retrospect. The whole situation is hilarious. At the time, there's nothing duller. There's nothing less interesting. And there's, there's nothing I want to write about or talk about least. But it's very real. It did happen. But the shame stays with you and the shame burns your cheeks along, but your cheeks are red as if you've just told a joke and everyone's laughed. The actual physical reaction is kind of the same. So in a way, it's important to actually, I think, be honest about these things and say, this is mad, this is scary, this is terrible. But it's also kind of funny. And if we're going to pretend that all of this happens in a vacuum where, you know, we're all professionals, we all knew exactly what we were doing every step of the way, that never happens. It never happens in life, let alone in the mountains. So I think it's important to be honest about it. And I think funny books are actually the books that often are the most truthful books. Because if you deny the humour of situations, you've denied, you know, all the colour often. In terms of climbing, I think that you do find out that a lot of the people that I climb with, a lot of climbers are just really funny people, always looking for the humour in situations. And often the, the madder they are, the funnier they are as well, or the more they try and make light of, of life or death situations. But um, also I think it, it connects to that, that aspect of writing about mountaineering connects to something that I think about in poetry more generally, which is um, there's a quote that I've always go back to that I can never remember who said it but it's something about him um, it may be Miroslav Holub actually he said something along the lines of him first you get them laughing then when their mouths are open you pour the poison in and this idea that you can use humor to to startle people as well sometimes in, in a kind of, kind of dark humor sort of way um, maybe as well which is something that, that I think maybe guides some of my writing not about mountaineering and such but about other things that I think are kind of funny and tragic at the same time. Not meaning to make light of it, but, but recognising the comedy in it as well. It's easier to take people with you if they're having a good time. If you write the most serious book in the world, I mean, Cherry Apsley's The Worst Journey in the World is not a laugh a minute, but then again, you have been warned. And, you know, my dad read that recently and really, really enjoyed it. He said, it's remarkable. It's just, a, they had a horrible time. I went, really, did they? And he went, yeah, I mean, phew, it really brings home what a horrible time they had. I was like, right. He went, awful time they had. I was like, right, you enjoyed it though, didn't you? He went, well, yeah, I mean, I, I got into it eventually. But, you know, I thought if they did it, I should do it. I went, yeah, but you only read the book. He went, well, exactly. My dad features heavily in the book. His are the funniest bits. I didn't have to work very hard. He's going to be in the next book as well, possibly. Because my editor said, I think people want more of your dad. <laughs> He's not here tonight, no, he's, um, he's safely in Bath, so it's going to be fine. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.